My name is Brianne Fueling, and I am the Director of Counseling Ministries here at Village Church of Bartlett. And I have had the privilege of attending Village Church actually since I was in second grade, and so this is my 27th year at the church, which is wonderful and awkward all at the same time. For those of you who don't know, I also brought the Village Church, their lead pastor, by marrying him um, 14 years ago, and he became the youth pastor, and we worked in youth ministry for about 10 years together, and then he's now been the lead pastor here since 2008. I have three kids. Their ages are <laughs> nine, seven, and five, um, and a dog um, who is like little, young, I don't remember, 12, month, 12 weeks-ish, and um, that has been a delight to be able to have those. And my children are um, a delight also most of the time, <laughs> which we're going to talk about tonight. Um, I also have four chickens. So I don't know if they fall in the delight category, but they are the pet that makes us breakfast, and that is a fun thing for sure. One of the things we're going to talk about tonight, we had the opportunity last month on the first Monday of the month to be able to talk a lot about the technology and some of the trends and some of the concerns that we're seeing happen in our students today and in our families today and in our churches today. And... We actually are going to be doing, I'll talk a little bit this, about this at the end also, a book club in December on the first Monday of December, I believe it's the fourth, at our home for anyone who wants to read the book that we base a lot of the material off of, which is called The TechWise Family by Andy Crouch. I cannot recommend that book enough in terms of the gracious ways that it encourages parents to approach technology in their homes and the very practical hands-on suggestions that it gives us for trying to use technology in a way that honors Jesus and really develops our students in a way that is going to be good for them in the long run. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. So I think all of us in this room, if you're a parent or a grandparent, I'm just going to use the word parent, but you can go ahead and sub in grandparent too if you're in that category also. You get your double duty there. Um, parenting is hard. So I don't know if any of you have experienced parenting to be a bit more challenging than you expected it to be. I personally have. There are a few things in life um, that rise to the level of importance as parenting does. And I think one of the things that is amazing when we look at parenting is that many of us know this. We know how important it is. We all had some kind of parenting role or lack thereof that affected us in one way or another. Yet we know this and we understand this, but yet whether it's for lack of skill or the exhaustion that we experience or fear of failure or apathy or the fact that so many days we're focused on survival, whatever it may be, the importance of knowing how important parenting is, it oftentimes competes with our daily duties that we have responsibilities for. So working in youth ministry for 10 years, I often saw this tension happen in families. And not being a parent at the time when we worked in youth ministry, I'd talk to parents about you know their child was experiencing a very hard, let's say, breakup, or their child was maybe self-injuring, or their child was doing all sorts of different things. Side note, I think I forgot to say that. I did say I'm the Director of Counseling Ministry, so I have my Master's in Counseling Psychology and Licensed Clinical Professional Counselor in Illinois and um, work out of the church here. So many of the students, when they'd have a lot of these challenges, that would be kind of like my area of coming around them and loving them. And I'd always be so confused talking to parents about their heart towards their children, yet they would never like say those things to their children, right? And so... Or they never take the time to go, I don't even know when I could tell them that I'm sorry that they're experiencing this. And I'd be like, I, I don't get 
I don't, I don't understand why you won't just set your child down and have that conversation you know that will like change their life and why you won't do that. And time and time and time and time and time again, working with parents and working with students and often being that bridge between the two of them, I found myself, and I, I can honestly say it was not, after, I, was, I would say I was judgmental at the beginning. After a period of time, it became so common that I began to say to myself, there's something here that I just don't understand not being a parent. There's some kind of tension, there's some kind of something that keeps parents from parenting. And it got to be very confusing for me. And I can say that I understand it a lot now. In terms of you know the importance of your words and the way that you are shaping these souls and shaping these lives, yet at the same time, you have to do their laundry and scrub the showers and go to work and earn the money and all these kinds of different daily duties that oftentimes collide. And they keep these redemptive opportunities, these redemptive conversations from happening. God has chosen parents to be the primary tangible instruments in the shaping of the human soul. And I think a lot of times that has a weight about it that sometimes we don't even know what to do with that. But, but shaping the human soul is his cause, and we get the opportunity to partner in it with him. And too often, I, don't, I hope I'm not the only one with all these experiences. That'll be awkward. Um, too often, we parent like firefighters, right? We parent to this fire, like, wah, this thing is exploding. Our child's melting down in Target, and this is a hot mess. Like, wah, our adolescent child is like experiencing all these emotions and they've shut themselves in the bedroom like woo woo whoosh 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 and these fires right like honestly I don't know if it's just me but like it tends to be like 20 fires in one day and then there'll be like one day without fires but I'm still recuperating from the 20 fires the last day that it's exhausting right and so we tend to parent like firefighters parenting to the fire and we wonder why the fire keeps reappearing and popping up elsewhere. It's like that awful, I hate Chuck E. Cheese so much. <laughs> and um, my children love it. My dear mother-in-law loves to gamble. And she's the one who takes them to Chuck E. Cheese. And I always tell them, my, Michael, I'm like, I feel like this is child gambling. And this is like getting awkward. And so when you have that mole game, though, we were just at Chuck E. Cheese. And actually, like Michael and Angelica, back in the back there, they came with us. And my middle daughter was trying to get all those, I don't even remember what was popping out of the holes. And so Michael and I stood on one side or the other, and we were trying to help her like, get them all down, right? Because that's how you get the most tickets. And, um, and I felt like that is what parenting is like so many times. Like You get this thing down, and this one pops up. And you're like, wah, and you draw all your attention over here. And so when we talk about being firefighters, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. And so I hope everyone else has had that experience maybe one time um, to be able to say, like, oh, I, th I thought I got that. Oh, look at what's popping up. And these things, they come out, and they come out of our control, and they reappear, popping up elsewhere. And so often we get it wrong by using our power and our words or our voice or our loudness or whatever it may be to get our children to behave in certain ways. We establish laws, and then we play the role of police officer and sometimes judge, to enact and ensure that those rules are held to be true, that they're enacted, that you're going to do what I said, that you're going to do that the way I said to do. Again, I don't know if this is just me, but my children are repeatedly their worst selves in the most awkward of circumstances. <laughs> when I was nine months pregnant with my middle child, my oldest daughter threw her first tantrum in the middle of Target in the middle of about 25 people. And I had something called hyperemesis when I was pregnant, so I didn't actually go out a lot by myself because I threw up like 25 times a day and felt like death at every moment. And so there I am in Target, and I'm, I'm gigantor, and she's absolutely kicking and screaming because she wanted to stuff my little pony doll from the bedding aisle in Target. 
And I remember thinking, who is going to take care of this? <laughs> and I remember looking around and everyone was looking at me. I was like, why are you looking at me? I don't know what to do either. And I remember thinking, oh, because this is my child and this is my moment. And I have no idea what to do. Not one. Another favorite awkward moment, and this happens every time. So we are licensed foster care parents, and whenever the foster care worker, social worker, comes to our house for like a house check, my son is awful. Last time, he repeatedly threw a ball at my head and stood, it's not even a joke, he's never done this before ever. He just stood five inches away from me and threw a ball at my head the entire time. And I was like, I don't even know what to do right now. I don't know how to parent this. I have never parented this before, and I don't know. So I'd be like, okay, why don't you go throw the ball over there? He'd be like, no, I like it at your head. And I was like, I, I, I don't know how to respond to that in that moment, right? Like, you feel like you're on the stage. You feel like these eyes are watching you, and that increases the pressure, and it makes me feel like, please just stop. Just stop. And there's so many times where I'm like, okay, where's that fire extinguisher? Because someone needs to, like, put this out. And does stop, drop, and roll work at this moment? I don't know. It might change the event, and they might make me look like I'm crazy, but maybe they'd stop doing what they're doing. But I don't know how to put out those fires in those moments. And in those moments, they oftentimes consume me, to be able to be like, mm, what is happening right now? And I miss the heart of what my children are trying to communicate to me because they're awful communicators. And so I oftentimes have to be able to look and see what is actually happening here. And sometimes the recovery from those experiences, I might be, the, again, the only one, but sometimes those can get me so worked up, I feel at that point I'm in like a visceral spin trying to figure out how to navigate crisis mode and like my heart is pounding and I'm like, oh, wow, okay. I will be calm because the foster care lady is watching me and I should be calm anyways. And that puts me into crisis mode and it puts me into survival mode. And Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart. And so when I, I'm looking at their hearts and I'm looking at my hearts in the situation also, and I still can't put my finger on why it's always these most inopportune moments that my children seem to be just their most awkwardly sinful little selves. Um, I've, I'm, I'm totally taking like comments on that afterwards too. So you think about that and let me know what you think it is. I think it might be the pressure that I'm feeling in the moment and they feel it so they act awkward, but that's all I got. And so we always have these rules and regulations, right, that we try to produce like little rule followers, right? Like rule followers, they equal moral people and then they can make good decisions and life will be happy. But the problem is so many times when we approach parenting from these rules and from these regulations, everything that we're creating is external. And a biblical view teaches that parenting is all about not just placing external boundaries around children and, and parenting to the external, but that it is about exposing, it's a huge word, you can write it down, tattoo it on your eyeballs, exposing and molding our children's hearts. Our job and our joy as parents is to develop a moral and decision-making model that is both personal for them as an individual and internal. And so go ahead, Matt, and go to the next slide. This, hopefully all of you have heard of Kohlberg's Stages of Moral Development. Kohlberg was a man who did not love Jesus, but he loved children. And he set off his, some of his life's work to be able to study children and how they grow in their moral development. Um, he theorized that a person's moral reasoning, which is what drives your kind of ethical behavior and decision-making model, has six identifiable stages spread across these three levels. And so this first one up here is ages like three to seven-ish. There's not like a, you turn seven and on your eighth birthday you wake up and you've entered into 
conventional level two. It's not, it doesn't work like that. So you can be much younger, you could be much older. You right now, as I read this, will all think of adults, so you're like, and you've not moved past stage one, <laughs> which is true. And so stage one is obedience and punishment. You obey so you don't get in trouble. And you know what? This is a really important starting place. And so a lot of times, that's how little kids learn, right, how to obey. They think, how can I avoid punishment? An individual's motivation is to behave ethically is driven from the fear of getting caught and the fear of punishment. Second stage is self-interest, individualism, and exchange. And so that's the kind of thing that's like, hmm, well, what's in it for me? Right or wrong is a function of rewards at this stage, where a you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours mentality dominates. And so they have this kind of like, ah, I'll do it if it's going to bring pleasure, and I won't do it if it's going to bring pain whether that's emotional or anything else. Second level, this goes like eight to 13-ish. So if you can think about your children and be thinking about where they fall into these different levels. This is where moral reasoning arises from comparing one's actions with society's expectations. And so first it was personal concern. Now we're beginning to kind of look horizontally in the world around us. The third stage is, oh, I like the way this makes me feel when I'm a good boy or a good girl. So you're gaining the approval of others and you're loving kind of that like success. You can probably think of lots of kids who get stuck on that stage when they're like, I don't know how to be a good boy or a good girl, it doesn't work, so I'll probably just be a bad boy or a bad girl because it's way easier. And they kind of like lose hope and give up on that. Stage four is um, law and order, like the TV show. And this is the desire to maintain a functional society by obeying laws, drives, and behaviors. And so they, because that's the rule, because it's the law. So it's kind of pretty black and white, but very law-oriented. 13 and older is what we like to see happen in stages five and six. And so stage five is social contract and orientation, and that's for the common good and the welfare of other people. You begin to know that like the choices that you make, they impact the people around you, and you begin to see the consequences of what's going on. You begin to see like, oh wow, that not only made me like feel like a good person, but like I saw that that like was like, it helped my mom by like doing that, right? And so you begin to make these decisions that are actually caring for other people and thinking about them. So honestly, some five-year-olds could be in that category. Like I said, so that age is just like a general idea, but people can be all over this stage. And like I said, I'm sure you have one or two adults who so you're like, I'm pretty sure they haven't moved past stage one. Stage six is principled conscience. And so that's personal integrity no matter the price. And so this is kind of the ideal. This is where we want to see all our kids kind of get to is that they make choices based upon who they are and what their values are, no matter what the consequences. If they're called silly, if they're called stupid, if they're called no matter what it is, that they're gonna stand for what they believe is their value and what they believe is right, no matter what the outside influence is for. Um, this is where altruism comes in, the ability to love people without ex like having anything come in return. And so, we see this all throughout the Bible. If you were to, like, we could spend, I just decided we probably shouldn't spend all our time on this tonight, but we could spend all of our time looking through different biblical stories as we see people who are making choices based upon that external motivation that kind of happens in that first aspect or versus the internal motivation that happens in that second aspect. We want to see all of our children moving from external to internal. And so I think tonight, um, I'd love for you just to continue to think about, okay, where do each of my ch children land in this? Where, what kind of fuels them? Do they avoid punishments? Do they want to look good? Are they looking for approval? Is it for self-interest? Are they loving others? Do they do things that sometimes sacrifice themselves just because they want to care for someone else? 
We see in the biblical story of Paul, when we meet Paul, he is a Pharisee and he is very controlled by external motivation. He wants to look good to the people around him. He does insane things and killing Christians and doing all sorts of awful, horrible things because he was getting accolades from people for doing it. It made him look good. It made him look holy. It made him look fabulous. Complete self-interest. Complete approval of other people. Then Paul encounters Jesus and it changes his life. And everything that happens in the way he makes moral choices comes to an internal source and honestly costs him a lot. It costs him his life. And at the end, his personal integrity is so high because he absolutely loves doing things for other people's good. He writes so many different epistles in the New Testament because he wanted to encourage people. He wanted something for their good, even if it came at the cost for himself. So again, thinking about where is your child, what motivates their behavior, We can watch their drives. We can't ever know exactly what's going on in their heart, but these things are very observational to be able to say, okay, as you're growing, are you moving towards an internal motivating factor? One of the greatest things about God's economy is that in his economy, we discipline that which we love. And when we look at our kids and we see these fires popping up all over the place, it is our job not to leave smoldering fires to burn another day. We get to fight to get to the cause and to the heart of the problems that our children are experiencing. When we grow up in community, we get to have hard conversations. We get to be called to the table. We can encourage each other. We can call each other out. And parenting is so much like living in Christian community, and it's so much deeper than just responding to the fire and pointing it out or reacting. So some of you know that in life and conflict, we can respond or we can react. Responding is something that we choose to do, and reacting is something that just comes out of us, like a chemical reaction, right? (laughs) Sorry, Reagan. And so one of the things that we we know is that we have these options to be able to respond, hopefully not react to the crisis. And that's the job of a first responder, right? Like if we keep stretching this firefighter um, opportunity, we see that like the job of a first responder is just to get the fire out. And I've watched enough Chicago fire to know that after they get the fire out, right, then comes the investigation part. Then comes, what is the cause? What was at the heart of this fire? So our opportunity as parents is to live in these daily moments with our children, but to go so much deeper than teaching and disciplining and rules and regulations, and to know that we have to investigate the source and the cause. And so often we parent behavioral change, not a heart change. And the crisis is not this little fire popping up here or this one popping up here, but it's happening in the source and the cause of the fires. And so tonight, I just wanted to be able to hopefully allow us to have an opportunity to dig into the, the heart of parenting and what it means to parent to the heart, um, to investigate the cause and the source in each of your child's hearts. If you have one or you have 75 children, um, I also wanted to be able to give you thinking time. So as I said, as some of you are coming in, I hope everyone has a handout of notes and then one of those heart-shaped worksheets. I'm going to talk about that more in a minute for each of the children that you have. Um, So yeah, part of my hope was to be able to give you thinking time so you could think and you could really begin to flesh this out now as a workshop, not just as something that you hear and then two years from now you're like, I wish I really would have had the opportunity to think about that because that's what I do in my life sometimes. So when we talk about parenting the heart, what what are we talking about? Matt, you can go ahead and go to the next slide. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. What your children say and do is a reflection 
of what is in their hearts. And this is hard for us to come to grasp with for our own hearts a lot of times. And sometimes it's hard to be honest and look at our children's hearts and be able to say what is coming out has something inside of it that is causing it and is oozing out. Luke 6.45 agrees to this point and says that a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So those little fires that pop up, when we parent this way, we often encourage behavior change that has no sustaining source. We put out the fire, but we haven't dealt with the source that's causing that fire. And I hear you. Like, I can't even tell you how much, I don't even know what emotional word to put in this link right now. Like, stuff. <laughs> it's not an emotional word. It's a bad counseling word. How much stuff that I have in my life where I'm like, oh, I just wish I could get, like, I could have more intentionality about parenting to that. Because I can see this tension. I'm putting out fires. I'm not getting to the source. And so those little fires that pop up when we parent that way, we, enc we encourage behavioral change, again, with no sustaining source. It's kind of like if you had a giant dead tree growing over here, right, and it was just sticks and it was all kind of like shrivelly, and you'd watch that tree for a couple years as you drove by it on the road and it hadn't had leaves in forever. You'd wondered in a good storm if it was going to fall over on your car. And one day you're driving by it and you're like, those are the shiniest red apples I've ever seen. And you get a little closer. And someone's taken the most beautiful apple and just nailed it to the tree. All over. What would happen to those apples? Thank you. I was like, no, really, you do know. Yes. Um, they would rot. <laughs> like, so eventually, they might look good for a couple of days, but nailing apples to a good, a dead tree eventually will rot. And so change, a lot of times when we're trying to change our children's behavior, but we haven't changed the source that's fueling that behavior, they have no opportunity to be able to sustain that behavior change when we haven't gotten to the heart of the matter. So change must grow up from the core of our children, from the root and from the heart. In our children, it must be sustained by a source. Secretly, it's the same for us. We must affect the source of our children and get to the source of what's happening in our children's hearts. We get sidetracked and we focus on what we see and what we experience in these daily moments and we often just miss that heart. And we so are drawn to those rotten, smelly apples in our children's lives that are gathered around by all the fruit flies and we're like, oh, I hope no one sees that. Or, oh, goodness, honey, that is just rank, right? And it's understandable why we start there in our children's lives when they're screaming in Target or, you know, they're talking back to you in front of your in-laws or other such magnificent opportunities in parenting. But it's bigger than rotten attitudes and it's bigger than rotten apples in our children's lives. We have to get to the causes cause. Paul Tripp, you can go to the next slide. Matt says, um, what must you do in correction and discipline? You must require proper behavior. God's law demands that. You cannot, however, be satisfied to leave the matter there. You must understand and help your child to understand how his, heart, how his straying heart has resulted in the wrong behavior. How did this heart stray to produce this behavior? In what characteristic ways was his inability or refusal to know, trust, and obey God resulted in actions and speech that are wrong? Kohlberg's research shows us that it's an external starting point in our behavior when we learn these morals. But we cannot leave it there, and we cannot be content to leave our children there. 
our greatest opportunities, one of the greatest opportunities we have as parents is to assess our children. Um, so in my studies, I had the opportunity to take a whole bunch of psychological research classes and testing classes. And honestly, at the beginning of them, I thought, oh, why, why, why? And I grew to love those classes, to be able to see how we manufacture an assessment tool that is actually going to bring about great results. Um, and so sometimes, again, those greatest opportunities we have to be able to assess our children, to be able to see the desires of the heart that are unknown even to the people who are creating them. Like, how many times do you go up to your children and you're like, what are you doing? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> like, it'd be great if in parenting you went up to your children and you're like, what are you doing? And they're like, I'm very prideful today with a little bit of fear mixed in. So I need some grace. Right? No, that's never, literally never happened to me once ever, not to like any degree of that, right? And so we have to be able, as we talked before about, we have to be able to expose our children's hearts to them to be able to say, you're kind of prideful today with a little bit of fear, and that's what's going on here. So to be an outside observer, it can get really confusing very quickly. I think when we look at our children and when we're in these hot mess moments, and we're, we're like, oh, oh, what is happening? It gets really messy. So I created this very detailed and scientific research assessment tool that you see on the paper in front of you. It's, you can laugh. It's a joke. It's a heart. Um, so what I wanted to be able to do, you can go ahead and go to the next one, I think. Yep. I wanted to give you a couple minutes. I would just start with one child, maybe the child that you're like, you have a special place in my frustration. And be able to think about these things with this child. So I'd love for you to just kind of brainstorm, right? Everyone, hopefully, when we were little, right, and in grammar class, we'd start with brainstorm bubbles, and we'd start here, and we'd work out, right? This is like an inverted or a reverse brainstorm bubble, and we're going to work in. So I want you to begin by thinking about what is it that I see in this child's life? I'm going to write mine up here while you guys work on yours. I want you to think about behaviors, repetitive behaviors, eye rolling kicking their sister. Uh, I, I mean, I, no one in my family does these things. I'm just yeah. guessing some of your struggles. Um, uh, I wrote a whole list. So um, let's see. Yeah, mean eyes, like this, these eyes. Like, I'm always like, what is that? Was that? Were you burning a hole in their soul? Like, why are you doing those eyes? Whatever it may be. So I want you to start with their behaviors, like stealing food behind your back like not picking their trash up out of the car. I don't care what these behaviors are, but just start to throw them around, okay? Start to throw them all around the heart. Then I want you to think about their decisions. What are some of these decisions that they're continually making? This could be good or bad. They're continually making a decision to stand against me. They're continually making a decision to take an extra 40 times to be asked before they put their shoes on. What are some of their consistent decisions? Then we go to thoughts. What are some of the thoughts they express to you? Don't worry, I have some. Some of my favorite ones are, why don't you care? I asked you to get your shoes on. What is that? I don't, uh, what? That's how I feel. <laughs> um, I don't want to. Sorry, Molly. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. You don't even care. I have that on here twice. Yay. That's how often it comes out. These different phrases, these different thoughts that are put into words that sometimes I feel like in those moments I just gloss over because I'm like, that is so ridiculous. I don't even know how that belongs in this moment and what it's attached to. 
So get your shoes on. But those thoughts, they come out again and again. These phrases, if you begin to listen, they will come out again and again. And most of the time we find that most children have like three to five phrases and three to five thoughts, that that is what is kind of going around in their mind and that they come back to when it comes to your relationship with them. What are some of the things that they're attracted to? Are they attracted to compiling as many personal belongings as they possibly could ever have? Are they attracted to people who are overly affectionate? Peter, stop. Peter's laughing. Inside joke. Okay, um, are they attracted to um, animals? Like, do they just love the affection and the love that animals give to them? Are they attracted to sugar and lots of sugar and caffeine, right? So what are the things that they are continually pining after? I can tell you that, like, my middle daughter, she pines after TV. Like it is, like she, will, she just identified her. She just told me today that the dog likes to watch TV just like her. <laughs> and I was like, A, why does that have anything to do with your identity? B, I don't think the dog likes to watch TV. Okay, great. So what are the attractions? What are those things that they're like, I love Shopkins. I love Rubik's Cubes. No one in my family likes Rubik's Cubes. It'd be great if they did better than TV. Um, and what are the environments that they constantly kind of throw these things in? So like a lot of things I'm going to share with you in a second. Um, one of the, my points in sharing what I'm going to share with you is that these things only happen at our home. So the things that you, these behaviors, do they happen at home? And do you hear that they happen at school or at church or in your neighborhood? And other people kind of make sarcastic comments or hints or tell you, your child has problems. The decisions, like where, you know, what are the environments that these kind of all come out in? Do they stay in one place or do they kind of like go over different kinds of environments? And so I'm going to give you a minute to do that and I'm going to write up on the board some of the things I brainstormed earlier and left at home and then re-brainstormed once I got here. I, there's a couple of my kids that I can see the thoughts go through their brain a lot of times too and I'll be like, I know what you're thinking. So like my middle daughter really struggles with thinking that her life is less than, like the less than mathematical sign. When she learned about that this year, she was like, that's my life. So when you have that worldview, you can find that everywhere. Like when the chickens lay like three eggs for your sister and they lay two eggs for you, less than. So that would be a thought. So like when I see her encounter like juices and they're like, she's like eyeballing like how much juice is in this cup and how much juice is in this cup. I can watch those thoughts go through her mind. Oh, she gave me the less than one. Because my life is less than. And I'm like, no. You're being lied to right now. Drink the juice. <laughs> the chickens did not plot this against you. Your life is very fabulous. All right, so I'm going to give you a couple examples. And so when we begin to look at these things, I call it like, you know, like a reverse brainstorming because we start with like the end result and we have to get down to like what's at the core, right? So this is the motion, this is the direction that we're headed. What is in the middle here? What is happening? And so here on mine I have, um, you don't care. I should put these in quotes. Walking away. Different physical triggers, definitely a sensory aspect here. Obstinance. Folded arms, uh, punishing with a cold shoulder, a hard heart. I don't want to. I'm not going to. Here's when she's eye rolling. The mean eyes I talked about before that burn a hole in your soul, but don't. Fierceness, 
Here's a couple other interesting things that I think are really important. There's like a smell that comes from the body when we're experiencing all of these things, right? And there's sweat, clamminess. Because I think sometimes without these couple details, you would go in a different direction than what I think actually is at the heart of what's going on here. And here's the big kicker. This only happens at home and only sometimes. And so if you had to guess, so actually go, I think it's the next slide, Matt, if you go to the next one. Do, 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 do. We're going to talk about this in a second. I was really wanting to equip you with like, okay, so when you are working backwards, right, into the core of what's going on, what is kind of like a brainstorming list of things that you could pick from? And so these are typically identified as like this seven, am I making that up? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, the nine um, source or core sins. We have anger, pride, deceit, envy, greed, fear, gluttony, lust, and slothfulness. And so, and people are always like, what's slothfulness? I'm like, have you ever seen a sloth? I just, that's what it is. Like, not really doing much and just going really slow and being really lazy. And so, I wanted to be able to give you kind of a list to be able to choose from as to what could be some of the options that we are looking to go in on. So, when you look at that list and you look at these things, what do you think could be at the heart of what this person is experiencing? Say that again? Right. I think that's one aspect of it. All right. What else, though? Yes, fear. And so my first observation of a parent was to go to pride, because that's what it feels like. When someone is telling you, I don't want to. But actually, I just totally did that. That's, that's my own way of saying I don't want to. This way, this more goes like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to. Or goes, you, you don't even care. You don't even care, right? These all become very much so. Yes, there's a pride that is an anchor inside of there, but it is mostly a fear. And how do we know that? Because I begin to see it in the body, right? There is a smell that is awful that begins to come, right? There's the clamminess, there's the sweat, there is the eye rolling, there's the folded arms. Everything is for self-protection and trying to like be kind of like that caged animal who needs to like protect themselves in those moments. And so one of the biggest struggles that I've had with this circumstance is that I, a lot of this is sensory and physically triggered, yet at the same time you can't be mean and abusive to me when you're being physically triggered, right? And so how do we parent through like having the sensory overload experience, yet at the same time, you cannot treat someone like that when you're experiencing this. And so a lot of it does, it comes down to this fear issue. And with, I think, a little bit of pride and probably a couple of other things lifted in there, but a lot of it comes to these, that mainly fear with a little bit of pride on the side. And so, and, and obviously, like, every child of mine struggles with every single one of those at one time or the other. But when we're trying to identify and get to the heart of what's going on, that we begin to focus with the things that we see that are most common and the things that they're kind of being known for and the things that we are encountering again and again and again. And so we have the opportunity to be able to whittle this down and kind of brainstorm back into what is at the heart of what is going on. So then we expose. We talked about our fact that our our job as parents is to be able to expose and mold the heart of our children. We begin to piece together a picture, right, of all the chaos and all the little fires that we're experiencing, and we're able to step back and be able to see what is at the heart of what is going on. 
And when we have the opportunity to expose, as we understand this, we can lead our children to understanding this. And we can begin to give them biblical anchor words and biblical anchor concepts as to what is happening inside of their heart. There is a huge power at the opportunity to be able to articulate what's happening in your heart. Hopefully as adults, you've all had opportunities and moments in your life where you too were like, I don't even know what's going on right now. I'm sorry, I don't even know what's going on right now. And you were able to step back from that situation and work through it and be able to articulate, this is what I'm experiencing actually. I'm hurt by you. Or when you do that, it makes me feel disrespected and it makes me angry or whatever it may be. And that's what we're helping our children to be able to do in these moments is give them the answer and help them to get to that and anchoring it in a biblical concept of what sin is and a biblical concept of actually these things, they are for your destruction. Anger, pride, deceit, envy, greed, fear, gluttony, lust, and slothfulness, they are for your destruction. So if you have all these actions, these behaviors and these thoughts and these attractions and these environments that pull you towards those, they are always going to be for your destruction. And so again, this is not an all-inclusive list of sin, but it is an anchor list. And so many people believe that most sins can be some way anchored back to one of these categories. And so one of the most beautiful things is that in the same thing, I listed out the corresponding grace of that source. And so what does an angry heart need? An angry heart needs acceptance. They need submission, and they need that serenity, which is that concept of like acceptance with submission tied together. A prideful heart needs humility. A deceptive heart needs truthfulness and the love of truth. An envious heart needs equanimity, which is the concept of just like accepting the fact that like, Everything can go around to other people, and that can be good. Also, I call it rejoicing for others because I don't think the first word is totally helpful. Greed, um, that's a concept of like sacrifice and being generous with what we have, actually, and dying to yourself, non-attachment, not, like, not allowing yourself to attach to the money or the things or the three pacifiers with two in your mouth and one in your hand um, at one time, but being able to like, give it away. Not that you need that with an infant, but it did start there. Um, fear, needing courage and confidence in what's going on, and trust, trusting that a good God is in control and that he has your back. Gluttony, needing sobriety, but also balance. Lust, needing the love of innocence and of mercy. Slothfulness, of being able to be engaged in what's going on, being able to be present, hard work, and sacrifice. And so each of these core sins have an opportunity or a corresponding grace. And so what we have the, and we'll just go to the next slide real quick, and we'll probably come back to that one. And then the cause. So when we talk about the source and the cause, I'm just going to go through this super quick. But there's an internal cause in all of us for what we're experiencing. And Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that's inside of all of us, and that's inside of all of our children. There's an internal cause for so much of the fires that we experience that are going on in our lives. And then there's external causes. We know that the forces of evil, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life abundant, it says in John 10, 10. So we know that the forces of evil also seek to destroy our children and seek to destroy our relationship with them and seek to take them down. And the third is another external source, which is, the, which is what ugh, so many different verses, and I picked this one, Romans 12, 2, to talk about the pattern of this world. But like the world that we live in, there's a pattern to it, and it's not a great one. And so a lot of times we have to be able to watch that our children are being led into sin and being affected in sin because they're conforming to the pattern of this world. And we are called to not conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
We're going to talk about that in a second. Go ahead and go back, Matt, to the one previous. And so when we look at these graces, when we look at these, these different sins and the corresponding grace, we have to be able to learn. This is so important, so like, stay with me here. We have to be able to learn how to offer our children the grace for the moment that meets them in this place. We have to become amazingly skilled lovers of our children to be able to know what is going on and give them the grace that corresponds with the thing that they're experiencing. And so for this situation, I need to be able to give her confidence and trust and courage with a little bit of humility to accept that maybe she doesn't know everything and she can trust me, right? And she can trust God and what's going on. And so we have the opportunity in each of our children's moments, which we, once we've exposed the heart, now we get to the molding part, which is to be able to say, okay, I want to be able to give you, I need a different color. I want to be able to give you courage. And trust. And the other one, I can't think of confidence. And so that I, as a parent, get to enter in into these moments and be able to model for this, them what this looks like and be able to walk them through those moments. So how do we offer our children those grace? We begin to brainstorm outward. And so we begin to meet the external needs, but also the internal needs. So at first we started by going whoop into the heart and now we have to figure out how do we work these things back out? How do we work courage, trust, and confidence into each of these moments? And so we have an opportunity to be able to rewrite for them and help them understand. So what does, let's think of a good one. Uh, the, well, folded arms, that's a good one. We'll start there. What does folded arms, and you guys, this is where you get to like show off what you've been learning hopefully. What does folded arms look like in the, in the context of courage, trust, and confidence? Just, it's not a right necessarily answer, but give me some ideas. I'm not going to tell you the answer, so we'll be here all night. But I'm like, this is very much the face. I think I just really did a good one, actually, in, my, in mimicking it. Yes. Yes. And what does a hug do? Yeah, and it opens them up, right? So, like, literally, it goes from this. If you're going to give someone a hug, at first, she oftentimes will stay like this. I just gave away half of the answer, she. Um, and so, stay like this, right? But then as you begin to give them a hug, like, they will melt, like, in, at least at this stage in their life. And that's, like, where I'm just, like, praying for the Lord's intervention for us to get this under control until we get to adolescent years, right? And so then it's an openness, right? So you go from a folded to an open, Right? And so sometimes we are going to teach our children, so when you're feeling that need to fold your arms, I need you to come and tell me and give me a hug. Or I'm going to run to you and I'm going to say that you need a hug. But open your arms. Right? And so a lot of these things begin with the opposite. So if you can't figure out the answer, right, and you're like, I don't know what to do, just start with the opposite. So what's the opposite of walking away? Walking towards. What is the opposite of fierce? Soft, gentle. What is the opposite of I don't want to? I want to, or like I'll try, or okay, I'd accept that. Um, what is the opposite of a hard heart? A soft heart, right? 
And so we begin to teach our children, we begin to model for them, but then also actually giving them the words and the concepts to be able to say, okay, so I, I see that so many times when you're being fearful and it's beginning to overtake you, you know what I see? I see that your arms get folded and you walk away from me and you tell me I don't want to. So what I'd love to do is next time you're feeling that fear, I'd love for you just to come to me and give me a hug and tell me I, I, I want to. It's okay. Or like, Mom, this is hard, right? So you begin to script for them the opportunity of what it looks like for Grace to be able to intervene in these moments and write a different story. But you know, as adults, we can't even figure that all out sometimes in our lives. And so with our children, we have to be able to script this for them and teach them what this looks like. And so first we start off by looking what's inside the heart and then we turn it around and we're looking at how grace can meet each of these moments where they're at and change them to look in a different way. And we're equipping them to be able to do that. So we begin to meet the external, but also the internal also. And we're hitting up on both levels. One of the hardest things about parenting is even if we were perfect parents, which would not happen, but even if we were perfect parents and we made the world around them a perfect place for them to flourish, when we go back to those causes, we would see that there's still a deceitful heart inside of each of our children that would still cause so many of these fires. And we start out parenting. We start out guarding and setting guard around our children and rising up for their protection and training our child and to try to do this themselves. And as they get older, what do we do? We, we try to relinquish control. We're supposed to, at least. That's the concept of helicopter parenting, which is another subject, right? We try to relinquish the control back to them, to be able to do that for themselves, to be able to make these moral choices, to be able to have these boundaries that they've set, to be able to know this. But I think so many times we are not equipping our children in a way that even knows what's going on in their own hearts. It's, it, I think a lot of our parenting exists and rests on the behavioral level. And then so when they continually see this again and again and again, they cannot figure out what is the source, and so their change doesn't stick. And I will tell you that time and time again with working with Christian college students, that is an aggravating experience. It is an aggravating experience to want to change something in your heart, not know how to do it, try again and again and feel like a failure, and that's why so many people give up. It's because they don't know what grace is and they don't know what the power of God is to make that change happen. And so I think as parents, we have an opportunity to be able to influence that and to be able to model that. And so we teach them to guard their own hearts. But at the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, and that is where the power comes from a change outside of our power but within our influence to help make these decisions that heal and model and get to the source. Our greatest need for our children is for them to have new hearts. Hearts that are hidden in Jesus, that are controlled by him and are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so oftentimes when we look around in the world, we see the power of God displayed in erupting volcanoes and in earthquakes and in tsunamis. And we see the power of God displayed in the intricacy of a leaf that has fallen from the tree and in the way that a chicken's eyeball moves in a gross manner and in the way that chicken's legs are so scaly and so many different other things about chickens I could go on and on about knowing them now. They're gross. Um, but, he, but when it comes to where the Bible tells us where God's power is, it's not in the volcano. It's not in his creation. 
It's not in these magnificent displays of crazy power, but it is in the power of God is in the gospel. And I think when we think about the power to change our children's hearts, that's where the good news is, is that it is not on our shoulders. I believe that it is within our influence, but it does not rest on our shoulders. And at the same time, that's really hard news. And so he gives us the power of God in the gospel. And the gospel is that the good news of Jesus that came to give us new hearts and give our children new hearts. That our hearts and the hearts of our children, although they were deceptive and evil, that he sought after us to know us and to love us and to bridge the gap of our sin before a holy God. And nothing that we could do, no perfection in our parenting, no imperfection in our parenting, no action or thought in our minds could get us there and get us over this cosmic, fortified, but very real gap that has stood between our hearts and a perfect God. But God knew our plight and offered Jesus as the only way to get to God, to offer us freedom from our causes, from our sources of our own problems, from those of our children, and as the living water, he contains the opportunity to distinguish and overcome the fires that are in our own hearts and rise up in the hearts of the children around us. And this is our greatest need in parenting the heart, is to ask the Lord to own their hearts, to make it new, and to make it his. Not because of anything our kids could do or anything that they can't do, but because they put their trust in Jesus. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Our parenting is to expose our children's hearts and to encourage these graces. I pray that we, do, we work to be able to exemplify these graces in our children's lives, in our own lives. That they can see that when we struggle with anger, we are markedly moving in sanctification, the process of Jesus, God making us more like Jesus, and they see us changing. They see us assessing with this amazing scientific assessment tool the things that we see coming out in our own hearts and in our own lives, and we find out what is at the core of our own hearts and change that, and they can see that, and they can watch that. My favorite is when my children call me to the table. It's not my favorite, actually. It's always awkward, and it makes me giggle and um, really weird. And I'll never forget when, when my middle daughter was, oh, man. How do we, she's seven. Seven minus three is four. So between three and four, she was like, Mom, I thought you said you were going to work on that, and you're not doing a good job. <laughs> and I was like, you're totally right. <laughs> I'm not doing a good job at all. Don't tell me that. Um, no, and so one of the and being able to have them, they're watching us, right? And that is such a good reminder of the fact that like, they're watching us. When I said I was going to change something and I didn't change it, and I was frustrated her, like I was frustrated her before, and I said I was going to change the frustration, and I didn't change the frustration, and she had the grace to be able to step in my life and be like, um, yeah, about that, right? And I, that's one of my, and she's continued to do that continually, yay. And so that is how we have the opportunity to be able to exemplify what this process looks like for us. We have the opportunity to be able to verbally process with our children what we're experiencing, the change that we're trying to do. I'm awful at that. I'm a complete visual and internal processor. Michael is fabulous at that. I oftentimes look at him and I'm like, oh, I wish it. Being a verbal processor makes you a better parent. I just think it does because you're communicating. I guess maybe if you weren't communicating great things. But when you're communicating great things, 
you're walking your children through these steps of what you're thinking and how you're changing, what you're going to do next, and all these different things. And I often look at that, and I have to really like take note of my process and then choose to say it out loud, right, so my children can watch me kind of step through that, because that is not my natural bend. And so how do we verbally process, okay, I see, oh man, I see that right now, I want to walk away, but I'm going to choose to run towards you, right, or whatever it may be in different things that we are processing. How do we make grace something that is real and tangible? How do we give them what they really long for, but in a way that builds them up? Making their source, right, their source of their behavior, one that is grounded, one that is pure, and one that is going to feed beautiful fruit growing on a tree for real, right? If you're being able to pass by the tree and you see those beautiful fruit growing from the tree because the source is pure, the source is good, and the source is healthy and that their source is grounded in grace, by the grace that we offer them and the grace that we're able to build into them. And the person in the work of Jesus, he is living water. He holds the answer and the power to extinguish each of the greatest sources of our destruction and the fires that rise up in our hearts. Even in our imperfections, they point us to the need for Jesus and for his accomplishment for us. And so, Matt, go ahead and go to, I think it's two slides from now, this one. I had the privilege of getting to put the slide together this afternoon and just thinking this is kind of like an addition. And I was thinking like, wow, isn't it awesome that the person and work of Jesus actually speaks to each of these different categories? The fact that like in my anger and want for something to be different or want to change something or I want to control something, like Jesus is already perfection and he is already a perfect source of justice. Like in pride and needing humility, like he had all the humility so much so that he died upon the cross for us and he had an acceptance of that role and yet he was also like a wonderful counselor which is part of being the nurturer which is what comes with pride. Um, and you can go on and on and how the fact that Jesus is truly the answer and so even in our shortcomings and our failings as parents, I think sometimes my children would like love to have a perfect mom and one of the greatest sadnesses of their life is that I'm going to continue to be a sinner. Now, I'm not going to accept that, right, and be like, sorry, I'm a sinner, so I'm just going to keep, like, hollering my head off at you when you don't keep your shoes on every day. I'm going to continue to grow and hope that Jesus changes me in all these different areas. But yet, at the same time, I want to continually be pointing them back to the living water, which is the true source, right, of distinguishing the fires that happen in their own souls to be able to say, but he's always going to be perfect, actually, and he's always reliable, and he's going to be way better at it than I am going to be. And that's what Jesus' accomplishment is for us and what we get to model and what we get to try to be for our children. And so we start with the external brainstorming, leads us into understanding what is at the core and the heart of the, our children's experiencing, exposing that for them, showing them what that looks like, allowing them to maybe even brainstorm this alongside with you, having their own assessment tool. And we're going to link that to this internal source this is the source of the behavior. This is the source of the thoughts. Being able to, and sometimes this is a very simplistic process, like mean eyes to fear, like usually it's gonna be like maybe four or five things. A lot of times I have a, a lasso when I'm in counseling and we lasso these things. And I did a really easy example of things that all went together in one category because I could, because I was teaching. But a lot of times in our hearts, there's gonna be lots of different things. And so we go around, we're like, okay, mean eye, oh, this marker. Mean eyes is similar to eye rolling, which is similar to a hard heart, right? And so we go around and we lasso these things to find the themes because lots of times there's going to be a couple different themes coming at us at one time. 
And we pray over our children for a new heart and the power of God in them, and we identify how we can make grace tangible in their lives, pointing them to Jesus despite our shortcomings as parents and loving them perfectly and offering them what they really need, which is Jesus to be their rock and to be their anchor. Praying that we have children who grow to be overflowing with submission and humility, truthfulness, rejoicing for others, generosity, courage, sobriety, mercy, and loving hard work for the cause of Christ.